0: Well, open your Bibles, if you would, to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. Mark, chapter 10. And we've come to a passage this morning that deals with the topic of marriage and divorce and also discipleship, because it's spoken to Jesus' disciples in light of a question, a controversial question that the Pharisees asked Jesus. And and I would say as you you approach this passage this morning, your your attention span is likely in one of uh, three categories. Some of you have been paying attention to our progress in Mark and you've been eagerly anticipating this passage to to see what, what God says. That's a good thing. Some of you will probably be tempted to listen and see if what I say agrees with what you already believe. And that may be okay, may not be okay, depending upon what you believe. And then some of you are just clueless. You walked in this morning, had no idea where we were in Mark or that was the topic, and you're thinking, I am going to listen today because this could be interesting. <laughs> Marriage and divorce is uh, is an intention getting topic because everyone here today is connected to it in in, in some way. Most of you are married or, or will be. As MacArthur said, if you stop looking for the Messiah, there was only one of them. You need to stop being so picky and just get married. You're, you're not that great of a catch either. So. The only command the Bible gives is to marry a believer. That's the command. The rest you have freedom to work out, and I understand there's matters of wisdom and principle and and otherwise but but the general um, approach of our society today to wait until you're thirty on purpose, on purpose, um, for whatever reason and and live in your mom's basement and burn in lust is not a good is not a good approach. Um, you're wasting. Uh, a number of, of good years. You're, you are a sinner, you're going to marry a sinner, and it's going to be hard, but the grace of God is is there if, if you are a believer. So some of you are married or or will get married or need to be, and some of you have been personally affected by divorce, whether by experience or by association. Um, I never will forget in Homiletics Lab, a 30-some-year-old man breaking down in front of his peers while he was preaching a sermon on the topic of, of, of divorce, um, and he just lost it, it just uncontrollable. And his explanation was that anytime he thinks about the topic, he, his his parents were divorced when he was a small child, and and he confessed the still, a thirty some year old man with both parents already remarried, he lays in bed at night, fantasizing about how they might be able to get back together, how many years later. So some of you have been personally affected by divorce, whether by experience or by association, whether that was your doing, whether that was somebody else's sin, whether that was before you were saved, any number of of categories. And all of us should care about what God says about the topic because He's our creator and we'll give an account to him. And and His word speaks on the on on the matter. It's not an optional item. It's not something that you and I have the privilege of choosing what we should believe and what we should not believe it's it it is something that is a doctrinal issue in fact it has implications of the gospel jesus says adulterers will not enter the kingdom of heaven so it's it's that weighty of a of a topic now you you probably are familiar with with the, the fact that there is there are four typical views of marriage and divorce there's the four view book and 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 we're going to deal with with some of the nuances of that uh next time. Um, but this time I just it would be pretty easy to summarize what 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 the Bible says. God has one view of marriage and one view of of divorce. He says marriage is good. It is not good that a man should live alone and when God created male and female, man and woman, to be married. He said it was good. So marriage is good. That's that's a, a simple statement that you can make from the Bible about, about marriage. In fact, 1 Peter 3, God calls it a grace of life. Husbands are to dwell with their wives in understanding as a fellow heir of the grace of life. So one of the common graces that God has provided for our time on earth, marriage is for earth, we're not, going to be, we're not going to marry or be given in marriage in heaven. It's for earth. The common grace that God has given for earth is, is marriage. And children are the natural fruit of that. It's the, the fruit of the womb is his reward. And God's view on divorce is, is given very clearly as well in Malachi 2, 16. I know you probably know that passage as well. I hate Divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with with evil. He he associates divorce with with like a blood spattered garment from from violence or, or murder. So take heed to your spirit. They do not deal treacherously. There are no qualifiers in the original language that soften that I hate divorce, there's no historical context which would explain it away. He hates divorce. He doesn't hate you if you've done it. He hates the act because it does violence to creation. Divorce decreates something that God creates. God also hates the sowing of discord and pride and many other sinful things. You can go to Proverbs 6, 16-19. Six things the Lord hates... Yea, they're an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lives, and one who sows discord among the brothers. And I would say any number of those things were likely committed if a a divorce takes, takes place. So I remind you of that if you're here this morning and you've been married for a lifetime that you would have a check from Proverbs that there are other things that the Lord hates. So you'd have a check against judgmental pride or the, the, the danger of making divorce a separate category sin. If you're still married, you're married in spite of yourself, not because of yourself, right? The grace of God, a whole lot of grace and for some of you, hairspray and makeup and some other things. But God doesn't soften or explain away sin or how He views it just because society or even the church does, including divorce. One of the things that you will appreciate about the Bible, you should appreciate the, about the Bible, is it is unvarnished. It just tells the truth about you, about me, about God, about sin. And and it does give us... a a roadmap for for trying to work through the crooked aspects of of life. And in the Gospel of Mark, the tenth chapter, Jesus will give us his view of marriage and divorce and how his disciples are supposed to live in in light of it. There's a contrast here between the Pharisees and the hardness of their hearts, and how Jesus expects his disciples, those who have, who have, who have agreed to follow him, those who have embraced him. And in chapter 10, he, our Lord takes us to, to Judea, and he continues this instruction to the disciples. And you remember, the last time we were here before Easter, he, he gave three drastic demands of discipleship, uh, In light of hell, the language was very extreme. It was very radical. It would be better for you to be drowned with a a millstone hung around your neck than than to offend, cause somebody to stumble. If your eye offends, you pluck it out. Very radical types of, of, of commands, demands for those who are his disciples. And now he shows us how the kingdom views marriage and divorce. And because of society and apostate Judaism... They're going to sound just as radical to the disciples as if your eye offends you, pluck it out. And the demands of discipleship in chapter 10 are now applied to marriage and divorce children, which is going to come up in verses 13 through 15. How how the demands of discipleship as it relates to possessions with the rich young ruler and then the demands of discipleship in relation to riches at the end of chapter 10. And he starts here with this first verse 12 verses of what it means to be a disciple and follow Jesus in respect to marriage. The marriage of a disciple, a follower of Christ, is to be very different from the world. We understand that the world does not follow God or his commands, but a Christian does. And marriage must be understood in light of the call to discipleship. That's what Jesus is doing for his disciples here. Remember, he's preparing them for the cross. And you, if you're here this morning as a disciple, he calls you to hear these same words. He teaches them, the disciples, by correcting the perversion that has crept into apostate Judaism and and its teaching. You know Jesus is always compassionately clear and drastically direct about what it means to follow him, and this passage is is no different if you're arrested by anything that Jesus said here it's it's evidence that that you have you, you have like me have breathed the air of society, and the followers of of Christ cannot live a life based on what god regulated due to human sinfulness, they should live their life based on what God desires, which is based in creation and the divine design. That's the basic basic summary of it. The disciples, followers of Christ, cannot live their lives based on what God regulated or conceded due to human sinfulness. Deuteronomy 24. They should live their life on the basis of what God desires, what is what is. Rooted and designed in creation prior to the fall. We live after the fall. And so there's all kinds of crooked and messed up things that happen living in a fallen world. And, and the Bible will give us instructions of how to maneuver through those. But a disciple desires and aligns their life to to what God commands. The design that he gives which is prior to creation, prior to the fall. And that's exactly what Jesus does in this in this passage. So here is the, the outline. You can see Jesus' position on marriage and divorce or the expectation for his followers, those who profess Christ on the topic of marriage and divorce. And verses 1 through 4, you see this confrontation over a debated concession. That's the Deuteronomy 24 passage the confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees. Then you see a correction that Jesus makes, and he makes it from divine creation. He goes back prior to the fall. He goes back to Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 in particular, verses 5 through 9. And then there's a clarification for for a disciple's commitment. The disciples get Jesus in private and say, did you really mean what you said publicly? <laughs> And Jesus says, Yes, I really meant what I said publicly, and he goes even farther than that. He turns the other side of the coin and gives the the negative side. As he gives the positive side publicly, he gives the negative side privately. Now we're going to take two Sundays to deal with this. Today is is marriage and the next time we'll deal with all the dilemmas that that you know, trying to untangle the the knots that are there. Now I' For those of you who do not know me and do not know my testimony, um, I have in my office, at, with my ordination certificate, a copy of the canceled check to Putnam County Courthouse where my wife and I filed for divorce before I was saved. I keep it there as, as a contrast to what God is able to do and sometimes chooses to do. So I'm not coming to you from the standpoint. Yes, I have a perfect wife, but no, my wife, my my life is not, my my marriage is not perfect. I I know what it is like to be in war. I know what it is like to say, to enter into a marriage, I will never ever divorce, no matter what, even as a non Christian, because that just wasn't something that culturally you were supposed to do. I know what it's like to do that and then live for a period of time where you come home and it is nothing. But war, and you finally conclude that something, this is bad, and I understand it might be bad if I pull the trigger and cut this thing off, but whatever that is, has gotta be better than this, because this is horrible. This is unbearable. And then finally making the decision to do what I said I would, I would never do. And a few weeks before that took place, the Lord saved me and God began the process of of restoration. Again, if you heard my testimony, Cinderella's pumpkin wasn't waiting outside of the church to whisk Tracy and us off to the castle, and everything was, was wonderful. It was several years of pulling up junk that was sown in our lives, principles sown in our lives from the unbelieving world, our own wicked hearts, ripping those boards up and relaying God's foundation. It was painful. It was a blessing. And it is hard, but it is what God demanded. The Bible says here that Jesus has a confrontation. And if you look at verse 1, there's this confrontation over a debated concession. And it says, getting up from here, he, he goes to the region of Judea and beyond the, the Jordan. Jesus passes into the region of Judea and, and he engages in his, in his ministry of, of training his disciples all the while he's marching to the cross. And the Bible says the multitudes gather to him. His popularity is a miracle worker, goes outside of Galilee, and Jesus does exactly what he always does. He teaches them God's word. It, was, it says in verse 1, it was according to his custom, and he begins to teach them. And in verse 2, the Pharisees are introduced kind of like without warning. Some Pharisees came up to Jesus, the Bible says, and they began to question him. Now, why the Pharisees and where did they come from? Well, Mark doesn't give us all of the ministry that Jesus has in Judea. There's about six months that he leaves out. He only goes to these final verses. If you've read ahead, you know that chapter 10, after chapter 10, we're at Jerusalem. Chapter 11, we enter into, into Jerusalem. So there's a there's a condensed version in Mark of this Judean ministry. This is actually his Perean ministry. And so the Pharisees have not left Jesus alone since they determined to destroy him all the way back in Galilee in Mark 3. And so here, they're trying to do that very thing to discredit him before the before the crowds. And if you're in doubt about their goal, Mark gives us that specific commentary. They they asked him the question in verse two, testing him, trying him. And their intent was to discredit him and to defend their own standards. Their intent was not to not to learn what, what God had to say. You see, they had a religion based on spiritual loopholes, and that included their on the topic of marriage and divorce. On the one hand, they wanted to seem like they, they kept God's law because that's how religionists earn favor with God. But on the other hand, they, they wanted to find a way they could please their own desires. And that's what you do with a loophole. You seem to meet the law. You salve your conscience to meet the law, but you still get to do what, what you want to do. And, and I've run into many people in the church who try to do the same thing. They spend more time and energy looking for a way around God's clear teaching than using the same effort to obey it. They ask him about a controversy. And the controversy is found in verse 2. They begin to question him about whether it is lawful for a man to send away or to divorce his wife. And Matthew adds, for any reason. You should not think that somehow modern society or the modern church is the is is the only one that's had issue applying the scriptures to marriage and divorce. This in fact it goes all the way back to Moses, and Jesus says the answer goes all the way back to the to the garden. And the the question is really quite sinister that they ask. And it's also very shrewd. I'll show you why. The Pharisees hope to discredit Jesus' ministry by answer by by him answering this question. They they hope that the people would not like his answer, but but they also ask it at a, at a particular place. Notice in verse 1, it says that he went there to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Now, the minute that Jesus goes beyond the Jordan, he enters into Perea, which is the territory of Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas, who had a divorce and marriage issue. Herod, the one who had just lopped off the head of John the Baptist for giving the exact same answer that Jesus gives in this this passage. Because he told Herod what the Bible said about it. It Jesus' position is John's position. Listen to Mark chapter 6, verse 17. Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him for prison for the sake of Herodias, His brother Philip's wife, and he had married her because John had said to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. I know that's not the verse up there. The Pharisees already knew Jesus' position. Remember what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount in Galilee. In Galilee, Jesus has already publicly given his position. And this is Jesus' position. The Pharisees knew exactly what Jesus' position was. They knew the answer to the question before they ever asked. They asked the question in this specific place where Herod has arrested John and cut his head off because Jesus' position is exactly the same as John's position. And that's why they asked the question right here, right now, in front of the crowds publicly so there would be witnesses. And Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, says, What's on your screen?" And they were hoping that Herod would get wind of him teaching about it and take care of him just like he did John the Baptist. And either way, they, they would not lose. The crowds would turn away from Jesus because he is going to say, it's not lawful for you to divorce. And they're going to be upset about that because many of them had already done that for unbiblical grounds, unbiblical reasons. Two, if Herod gets wind of it, then they'll take care of their problem he'll take care of their problem and yet it's been said you should never pick a fight with god look at verse three and he this is jesus answers jesus answers the question whether it is lawful for a man to divorce his wife he answers and said to them what did moses command you he didn't avoid their question He cut right through the traditions, right through the rabbinical interpretations, and he goes right to the Bible. What did God command? And that is the first and final question that ought to be on every Christian's lips at all times. What did God say? Notice they already have prepared a rebuttal in verse 4. And they said, Moses permitted a man to, to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. They said Moses permitted a man. They quoted Deuteronomy 24, verses 1, verse 1, which was a concession of mercy built into the law to regulate the hardness of heart, the sinfulness of, of man. It was mercy that was built in for the woman who had no property rights. It was also a merciful option for the place of execution. You remember Joseph and Mary. What did Joseph do? Joseph was a righteous man. And so, he was prepared to divorce Mary, give her a writ of divorcement, rather than have her stoned because of her presumed adultery. So, Deuteronomy 24 was a merciful provision. I want you to notice that Jesus asked, what did Moses command? And I want you to notice that they answered, Moses permitted. And they quoted the only place in the Pentateuch that even comes close to justifying their position which was that a man could divorce his wife for any reason on any grounds and you've probably heard it before whether it was on the grounds of showing her ankles because she danced in publicly uh, danced publicly and her and um her her skirt if you will would would show her ankles or whether she burned dinner or or whether she raised her voice too loudly, and the neighbors heard it, 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 or just whether you you found a better one. I mean, that was how liberal the policies were that the Pharisees were, were communicating. And so they found this passage that would seemingly justify that. The passage in my, Matthew 19, which we'll look at next time, which has to do with the exception passage, the Pharisees said, Jesus commanded to give a writ of divorcement, and Jesus actually corrects them. No, Moses permitted. But here Jesus asks, what did Moses command? He wants to know, what is the command that Moses gave concerning marriage? He's not asking for Deuteronomy 24. He is asking for the command, which comes from another book that Moses wrote, which was Genesis. Jesus is asking... What did Moses say in Genesis 2:24, which is exactly how he corrects them in verse 5 when they give him, Deut- when they give him Deuteronomy 24. He's exposing them even in the question, and they, and they don't even know it. And when they give their answer, Jesus rightly quotes what Moses commanded, which is, a man shall leave father and mother. God made male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. That's the command. And the provision in Deuteronomy assumes the practice of divorce and describes a right to which the wife was entitled. She was to be given a bill of divorcement, which authenticates her release from the marriage contract. It was a contingency. It did not declare whether it was right or wrong. Its primary function was protection for women who had been repudiated by their hard-hearted husbands and Jesus explains that to the Pharisees it was for the protection of the vulnerable it was not to promote immorality or man's whims for multiple partners it was not to promote divorce or part of God's original design it was it was a statement it was it was God's regulation of something that was bad in order to keep worse evil from from happening i'll go into much more of that in in the second sermon. But the Jews had built an entire divorce culture around this regulation of the fact that it was happening. In fact, Deuteronomy twenty four, if you go back and read it, it doesn't even permit divorce. It it simply seeks simply states it happens and, and what should happen if it does. If a woman is given a certificate of divorcement, The only command in that passage is what happens if if she remarries. If a woman is given a certificate of divorcement and she remarries, then the first husband decides he wants her back. He's commanded not to do that because it's defiling. That's the command there. It was meant to limit the problem of divorce, not serve as a license for its practice. It was not to be a statement of God's purpose for marriage, which is what the Jews had done with it. It was a necessary means to limit the damage when that purpose had already been abandoned. That's a good way to think about Deuteronomy 24. It was nothing like what the Pharisees and the culture at the time of Christ was was using it to justify. And Jesus makes that abundantly clear in verse 5. Here is the correction. When they don't give the right answer of what did God command... Then Jesus gives them the command. He corrects them, and that correction comes from divine creation. Verse 5. But Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and, and female. And he quotes God from Genesis. Jesus explains why Moses made the concession. And he also explains why God hates divorce why adultery happens when someone leaves in these next few verses when a spouse marries another person he says the reference that the pharisees quoted was a concession and it was permitted due to cardiosclerosis you've probably heard of arterial sclerosis, which is the hardening of the of the arteries this is cardiosclerosis in the in the Greek, it's a hardening of the heart. The hardness of the human hearts, what Jesus says, is why this concession was placed in the Mosaic law without identifying right or, or wrong. It's a regulation. Now I want you to notice where Jesus applies this. Look at verse 5. Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, or the hardness of your hearts, He moves the issue from an interpretive debate to to an inspection of the Pharisee's own heart. (laughs) He says that it's still valid today and it still exposes today. It's not about what Moses said to the Israelites 1,500 plus years earlier. It's about what he says to you today and about the condition of your heart today. You see how Jesus does that? This is the power of the Word of God. This sermon is not to simply inform you this morning. It's it's the word of your Creator that lays hold of you. It weighs you in the balance and then demands your obedience and, and identifies which way you're going to which way you're going to go. And, and yet the Pharisees and people like the Pharisees read the Bible in abstract and they debate over interpretations instead of dealing with its implications for their own lives. And so Jesus says, "What about your heart?" the hardness of, of your heart, and it's probably a good way to examine your own heart. When you spend more time explaining away the force of a command by exceptions than figuring out how to obey it, you are probably are of base, and that's what the Pharisees did. They, they wrote volumes in, in the Talmud and extra-biblical rabbinical opinions to explain ways around and remove the force of the original command in Genesis, and yet Jesus and God acknowledges that in a fallen world things get crooked and so in his law there are provisions for what happens so sin is not compounded and that's why Jesus is constantly correcting them you remember what Jesus says in the sermon on the mount to the people you have heard but i say unto you it's not a new law he takes them back to the original so Jesus here applies this to an inspection of their own hearts and then he gives his divine understanding of the intention of marriage. He gives the basis of marriage, he gives the bond of marriage and then he begins the becoming through marriage. The basis of his argument is from beginning of creation. He doesn't appeal to the kingdom that's coming. He appeals to God's intent. The very basis of marriage was one man and one woman in creation. That's what he says in verse 6. God made them male and female. The text is emphatic. A female and a male. That was for the purpose of marriage. So Jesus' argument, the basis of marriage, goes back to creation. And part of his argument is God made a female and he made a male. And in creation, there was no possibility for divorce and remarriage or polygamy. Because there was only one man and one woman, and that union was for a lifetime. MacArthur said there there are no spare parts. There were no spare people. They were created for each other and for no one else, and the union was complete. Their union was unique, and they're a pattern for all of us to, to follow. In the case of Adam and Eve, divorce is not only inadvisable, it is not only wrong, it was impossible. Because there's no one else there for either of them to marry. You've heard maybe your spouse has said this to you, or your girlfriend, or somebody that you wish was your girlfriend, if you were the last man on earth. You've probably heard that before. Maybe that was God's way to bring Adam and Eve together. The very bond in marriage, he says, the bond in marriage, his second argument, is an indissolvable or in dissol- dissolvable union. Look at what he says. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and and mother. In marriage, you break the prior family bond. Commonly called cut the apron strings. And you bind yourself to a new one. You leave and cleave. You've heard that before. And the word cleave means to... To be stuck together. I didn't say together you're stuck. I said it says stuck together. And the word means that, that, that you, you press into this, into this union. You've probably heard the example of being glued together like construction paper. But it is the idea that both people are pressing into this union and continually pressing to the point that they become inseparable. Their desires wishes, and even their wills. So Jesus makes this argument based on that. He also says what becomes in marriage, the becoming in marriage. Verse 8. They are no longer two, but, but one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. The two shall become one. You've heard that in marriage ceremonies all the time. It's it's the one flesh aspect of marriage. And a man and a woman are joined in marriage into an indivisible and inseparable union. But I want you to notice who does the joining. Look at verse 9. What therefore, this is Jesus speaking, God has joined into this indivisible, inseparable union. Let no man separate. It's God's work. And it's here the wickedness of divorce becomes apparent. Divorce is an action of man taken against an action of God. Divorce is the sundering by man of the union God has constituted. Divorce is the sister to abortion. Because both have the common denominator that they kill a creation of God. Marriage is not a contract of temporary convenience and not a union that may be dissolved at will. Jesus says very clearly, marriage is a work of God and divorce is the work of man. And that's why God hates it. And that is very different from what was practiced in the day. And the disciples then ask for clarification, because it seems very radical, even though it's very clear from Genesis. Look, if you would, at verse 10, in the house, the disciples began questioning him about this again. They want more information, just like, no doubt, you're sitting here this morning going, what about this, and what about that, and what about the exception clause, and and what about me, and what about... and." All of those are probably legitimate questions that we will definitely try to cover the next time. This is laying the foundation and the groundwork for what is God's design and what is His desire and what are believers called to. And just like I would stand here and preach to you that sex outside of marriage is fornication, I stand here and preach to you that the breaking of the marriage covenant is sin. And divorce, according to the word of God. It's not an unforgivable sin, but it is sin nonetheless. Look at verse 10 or verse 11. They ask him about it again. Uh, Maybe there's more to the story. And Jesus answers them with, with just as clear a statement, except he uses the other side of the coin. He said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. Now, now divorce does not, in and of itself, constitute adultery. If you divorce your wife, you send your wife away, and the marrying of another woman is the committing of adultery against the original wife. It is the marrying that brings adultery into the picture. And verse 12 This was radical. And if she, that's the woman, herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. Now that was radical because women didn't have the right to do that in Jesus' day. Deuteronomy says nothing about a man. This is about a woman initiating, sending her husband away, and Jesus says it's an equal opportunity sin. He uses the negative side. To the Pharisees, he gives the positive command. Here, he gives the outcome. And he says this to his disciples of what will happen. After he calls his disciples of what to follow, this is what will happen if you you refuse to to follow me. Jesus says it's not merely that one flesh should not be separated. It cannot be separated, which is why it causes adultery. Remarriage was assumed. Now, the key to this entire passage is how Jesus answers the Pharisees and what he teaches the disciples. Remember, Jesus is instructing the disciples. They set the the scene up, the Pharisees do, and Jesus says it's because of the hardness of your hearts. It's your hearts that are hard and why you're doing these things. And he contrasts that with the disciples Regardless of what you conclude about divorce, two things are clear from this text. It's a result of hard-heartedness, and it wasn't part of God's design. And what it was before the fall was, was good, and now he calls his followers to that design. And while divorce is practiced and permitted among the Pharisees Jesus is saying to his disciples true discipleship is not lived out in light of concessions given for the fall but in light of the divine intention given by the creator god's creation order is not some kind of ideal that we're to admire but not seriously implement you should strive under the shedding of blood <laughs> and an unbroken, lifelong marriage is the realistic standard to which we're expected to conform as believers. That's what Jesus is saying here. Christ's command to those who follow him, you're to reject the world and the apostate practices and keep your covenant. It's probably the simplest way to say what Jesus says here. And to not do so can lead to adultery and unrepentant adulterers Don't enter the kingdom. So the message for us is don't take it lightly. So you say, what about me? Why is it so messed up today? Why is everything messed up today? Why is there fornication and pride and lying and stealing and all of those other things that are out there? Because all like sheep have gone astray and our paths are crooked. And only Christ can bring you back to the straight path. But he says, don't go, don't govern your life by the broad road. Govern your life as you enter through the straight gate. And Jesus' gate is very straight. And the purpose is to reveal to you and to reveal to me that we have no hope whatsoever outside of the righteousness of Christ and that we cast ourselves on the mercy of Jesus. And in that mercy, He gives us not hard hearts, but new hearts, soft hearts. And then from that point, gives us a desire to live for Him and love Him. And if you love Him, you'll keep His commandments. And whatever you've done prior to salvation, He makes you a new creation. And there might still be scars and kinks and all of those other things there. But he's put you on a new path. And in that new path, you have a new master and a new goal. And here, his disciples are to be his followers. And that's God's intent on marriage. Next week, well, not next week, the next time. We'll cover all of the other side. We'll break down Deuteronomy 4. We'll look at the exception passage. We'll also look at 1 Corinthians 7. And hopefully when we're done, you'll have a general understanding of what the Scripture teaches. I'd just like you to bow your heads now. Let me say to you, there are those inside the kingdom and those outside of the kingdom There are those who have their sins forgiven, and there are those who remain in their sins. In Corinth, Jesus described who wasn't going to go to heaven, and he gave a long list, which included effeminate, adulterers, homosexuals, liars. And then he says, such were some of you, but you've been washed. So if you're here this morning... And you've divorced, you're a product of a divorce, you have committed adultery in the past. If you have come to Christ and you have repented and he has made you a new creation, you were one of those things. You are not one of those things any longer. And your sins have been forgiven and cast as far as east is from the west, never to be remembered again. And you have the freedom and joy of Jesus and his forgiveness For all eternity. But you also need to ask yourself the question Do you know Christ? Have you repented? Has that genuinely been forgiven in your life? Have you come to grips with that there is a creator and he makes commands and that whatever happened, you rejected those commands and did your what your heart desired and went your own way? And if you're in that category, and I would say to you this morning, the way of a transgressor is hard. Repent and believe and Jesus will do all those things that I said to begin with.